This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle, and this is the song There's Got to Be Something Here by the band The Lewis Connection, featuring Prince on guitar and backup vocals. This song inspired a book by Andrea Swenson titled There's Got to Be Something Here, The Rise of the Minneapolis Sound. It explores Minneapolis' segregated music scenes and the systemic racism that was at play in the city. It also showcases the overlooked bands and artists who shaped the city's sound as well as Prince's sound. The book starts in 1958, the year Prince was born, and ends in 1981, the year Prince broke out to Minneapolis's white audience. It happened when he performed at a music venue called Sam's, which later became First Avenue, where KEXP's own DJ Kevin Cole worked. Kevin Cole spoke with writer Andrea Swenson about the book. That specific show at Sam's, which I know that you were at, which I have loved talking to you about, was such a a crossover moment for Prince in his own hometown. It was the night that he was finally acknowledged by the mainstream white rock community. And it was a real jumping off point for him as he's releasing Dirty Mind and getting ready to go on this big tour that he was really embraced by the kind of white critics and more mainstream part of the music industry that he'd been trying to break into for his entire career up to that point. Yeah, it was an amazing show and uh, one that certainly blew me away. And there's kind of this white narrative uh, that certainly I have played a role uh, somewhat in perpetuating that uh, here's this amazing artist that appeared fully formed out of nowhere and blew everybody's minds as as if he had been dropped down from uh, another planet, which obviously is not the case. And this book got to be something here is is an amazing read, not just for Prince, but but to really understand a lot of the issues that uh, artists and uh, bands with people of color experienced, you know. And there's so much to discover. Tell me about some of the early black or uh, or people of color bands that helped establish that Minneapolis sound. Maybe kind of starting with the M's or going into the 60s era before we get into some of the bands Prince was involved with. The scene really started to gel in the 60s with these groups that were combining the R&B and soul music that was becoming more and more popular with rock and roll, with gospel. There was a, a real movement in the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul to combine these more non-secular gospel groups with this kind of burgeoning R&B rock and roll sound. So a couple of discoveries that I just absolutely freaked out about were um, the Amazers, uh, which was a group that got going in the early 60s, coming out of a, a gospel background in the, in the late 50s. And they put out this single that ended up get, getting re-released by Curtis Mayfield on his record label in 1967. And it's just so fantastic. The vocals, the harmonies are hair-raising, and it's really exploring this new kind of hybrid sound, which is really the groundwork for the Minneapolis sound, this kind of combining of different genres that people hadn't really thought to put together before.
Definitely the Amazers were a standout act. The Exciters were another group that did the gospel R&B crossover thing, and they, they would play with the Amazers a lot. And then by the late 60s, there was this just incredible movement of early funk music um, that Maurice McKinney's was a big star in that community with. And he, I never got a chance to interview him, unfortunately. He um, just passed away very recently and was uh, too ill by the time I, I was doing this research to speak with me. But he was, by all accounts, the rock star of the late 60s R&B scene. And everyone that saw him play said, I have no idea why Maurice McKinney's wasn't hugely famous. And in some of the only interviews that I was able to find of, from that era that he gave, he was talking about that Minneapolis has this issue with the black community. We cannot cross over. We cannot get access to the venues where other people are playing. And he got so fed up that he actually left and went to the Bay Area for the rest of his life, starting in the, in the early 1970s. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that artists faced and how systemic racism and oppression uh, in Minneapolis affected the music scene and things like neighborhoods splitting uh, splitting up because of uh, development or as a result of the Highway Act of 1956. You talk about that when uh, describing the Rondo neighborhood which was kind of uh, really got destroyed when they made I-5 between St. Paul and Minneapolis. Right. Yeah. So that was a real eye-opening period of research for me to learn more about the construction of 94 and 35 and I-394 here in the Twin Cities, especially 94. Like you said, the act got passed in the 50s, but the construction on the highway took place throughout most of the 60s. So by the end of the 60s, the Rondo neighborhood was decimated. I mean, it literally went through the center of that community and took out a lot of their main businesses, a lot of the nightclubs, restaurants, grocery stores. I mean, think about any kind of central community corridor and all of those businesses. They were all displaced. The residents of that neighborhood, it was a historical Black community. They were all displaced and with no real financial help. You know, the, the properties were bought at very, very low rates um, and they were forced out of that neighborhood and uh, starting into the suburbs even. So that that just had such a ripple effect on just the community's ability to have that gathering space and that strong core. And something similar uh, happened through North Minneapolis as well, actually a couple times, first with the 94 and then with 394. And also um, what we now know as Olson Memorial Highway um, back then was more of a, a community thoroughfare street um, that's almost has like a mini freeway feel to it now. People just zip right through there. And that used to be a real cultural hub as well. So I think, um, you know, having all of that change, it really um, just slowed the momentum of any kind of community growth and contributed to what we're still seeing today, which is very segregated city uh, communities that have huge disparities in terms of opportunities, income, education, and the freeway development, I think if you looked at any city, you would see that it was very intentionally routed through these communities that didn't have the same 
power, um, the same cultural capital to, to push back. So they were completely decimated. Decimated in some cases, like the Rondo neighborhood, decimated in other cases, really just walled off and segregated, uh, forcing black communities into kind of new areas that, you know, were essentially kind of walled off by the freeways. Right. So, right. And North Minneapolis still to this day is split in half. It's really striking, you know, to look at a map of that. Yeah. So so there was a, a lot of intentional segregation happening at the same time. At some point in the 60s, there was it seemed like in the book there was more there was kind of the starting of at least integrated bands, but not integrated audiences for the most part, because bands that had black performers in them could not play. They could not find <laughs> venues to play uh, outside of the black communities. Right. Yeah, that was something that I really picked up from interviewing these older musicians that were active in the 60s is that they were integrated as a form of survival, um, that they knew that they had to have white people in their bands in order to be booked at certain venues, most venues. And really a, a, a shocking thing for me to learn was that there was basically an unspoken agreement between the Minneapolis Police Department and the City Council. And the agreement was that there would not be black entertainment within a certain border that covered all of downtown Minneapolis and also some of uptown and Loring Park in that area. And if you had more than one black person in your band, they would start putting pressure on the clubs to stop booking that entertainment, stop trying to attract black clientele to downtown. It was a very obvious pattern over a number of years where anytime a club opened in this border that they would start to say, oh, you know what, we're going to start to put some pressure on your liquor license and maybe cite you for some violations that aren't totally <laughs> real um, to get some paperwork going. It, it, it was very, um, looking at the pattern, it, it was very obvious what they were doing. Yeah, that really surprised me, um, really was disheartening and <laughs> so sad to read about that, the, those unspoken agreements and the cases that you cite with a club like King Solomon's Mine that sounds like an yes. amazing club that was downtown Minneapolis. And I have friends that went there that I've spoken to since reading your book that said it was incredible. And like you said, you can cite any club in, in any city in the country uh, for, you know, whatever you want, if you want to, right? Right. Um, so it was a very calculated uh, intention there. And also what surprised me was really the impact of the Highway Act um, really being used to block off neighborhoods. Um, I was unaware of that before. So let's talk a bit more about the that racism that played out in the Minneapolis music scene, like uh, the politics and scenes like King Solomon's Mine. Can you describe that and, and the club after that, The Flame? Yes, uh, those were both so fun to learn about. So King Solomon's Mines was in the first floor of the Fauché Tower, which if you lived in Minnesota prior to the late 70s, 80s, you'll know Fauché was 
the tallest building in downtown Minneapolis. It was kind of the pride of our downtown cityscape for many, many years. So it was seen as this very illustrious building. And in the first floor, there was a nightclub and it opened up in the mid 60s and then kind of evolved uh, by the late 60s into King Solomon's Mines. The name is taken from a movie and the decor in this space was very um, exotic. There was a lot of like bamboo shades and um, even over the stage, it kind of looked like a little grass hut where the bands would play and playing up the, the scenery from the film. And it became the hot spot to see all of these incredible R&B bands. The Amazers were one of the house acts there. Maurice McKinney's and his band were one of the house acts there. They would play multiple nights a week. And it's a fairly small space. It's actually um, a diner now called Keys Cafe. And it has kind of these two long, like hallway shaped rooms. And everyone that I talked to that hung out there said it would be absolutely jam packed with people dancing, people partying, just having an incredible time dancing to this super sweaty, funky R&B music as it was really crystallizing uh, in, in that period. And it was only open as King Solomon's Mines for 18 months. That's how quickly the city started to put the pressure on. So it became pretty obvious that because of the music that it was drawing these really mixed, vibrant crowds. And that was something that the city did not want. And they started citing uh, King Solomon's Mines for all of these pretty bogus violations saying, oh, you're letting underage kids in. Um, this is a, a trouble spot. And it eventually got raided uh, by the police and they brought 10 people downtown to the police station and said that they were underage. But when I went to look through the files, all the people that were booked that night were actually able to produce identification and prove that they were of age. So it was just a completely phony raid. And after that, um, the city council said, we're suspending your liquor license. We're putting you under investigation. This is a trouble spot. We need to you know, crack down on this. And I actually was able to contact the city council and get the meeting minutes for um, the meeting where they discussed King Solomon's Minds. And all of the musicians that played there showed up at nine in the morning at the city council meeting with a petition that was like 20 pages long. And it's signed by all of the artists, all of the people that frequented the club at that period, members of the Minnesota Vikings team at that time. It was, it's just so obvious, even members of the media, it was so obvious that it was such a cultural significant space. And the city ended up suspending the license for long enough that the club owner couldn't afford to keep paying the rent and ended up having to leave. Um, but after that, it was, it, it was really kind of a turning point, I think, in terms of the city of Minneapolis starting to talk about and think about whether or not racism was impacting music and the development of the music scene here. And there were actually a bunch of letters to the editor in the Star Tribune after that, articles that were done in the Star Tribune after that, interviewing Black artists. It was the first time a lot of Black artists ever got any ink in the Twin Cities. And it started this conversation that, that continued into the 70s about this issue, which wouldn't end up getting resolved for many more years, but it, it was a huge turning point, in, in, at least in the conversation. Yeah, systemic racism, institutional racism, segregation has hurt so many people 
and from an art, music, and culture perspective, has really denied the world so much incredible richness. I can only imagine that there's similar stories of relatively unknown music scenes from the 50s, 60s, 70s, in other major cities across the country, similar to what happened in Minneapolis. Oh, absolutely. That's the thing that's so striking about, you know, the music that I've gotten a chance to listen to throughout all of this research is, I think it's just fantastic. But I think that every city probably has a hidden history like this and probably has equally as talented musicians that never really were able to break above, you know, underground. And I think about that a lot in terms of, you know, a lot of the music from these artists isn't available on streaming services. I was able to track down like the physical 45s and listen to it. Um, but it's not canonized and preserved in the same way as the white peers of the era. And it makes it feel really urgent to try to uncover it while the people who made the music are still with us to talk about it and to share it with us. That's one thing I really appreciate about your book. It uh, really documents that era. And I think it's upon all of us to to do that work to as music lovers to understand these these hidden scenes or these scenes that didn't get the attention they deserved that should have uh, gotten. And, and in this case, you have Prince, a major star breakout uh, of that scene. But uh, right. but that isn't always the case. But there's still a great scene. Uh, Light in the Attic Records here in Seattle put out uh, a couple compilations. The first one, maybe 10, 15 years ago, called Weedle's Groove. Yes, I love that. Yeah, and it documents the soul scene of Seattle in the 60s. And when that came out, a lot of people had that same reaction, like, what? I didn't know there was this great, vibrant scene. I want to know more, you know? Yeah, yeah. So right around the time of uh, King Solomon's Mine, like 66, 67, there was a lot of social unrest, protesting, even riots happening across the country, including Minneapolis. Prince would have been about maybe eight or nine at that time. But there was impact to his music as a result of this unrest. Yes. Well, the unrest shaped the landscape of North Minneapolis for many, many years to come. Um, and that's why I I ended up getting into it for at least a chapter, if not more, of the book. Um, the unrest in Minneapolis was really centered around Plymouth Avenue in north uh the near north neighborhood it's called and um it took out many many businesses but in addition to that and in addition to the protests and community actions that sprang out of that era it also created a community center that was very influential to prince and all of his peers it was called the way and it was right on Plymouth Avenue, and it literally was opened in the days following the first period of unrest back in 1966. And it was just so clear to that community that there were so many disparities and um, that community had so many needs that were being unmet that they ended up taking over this vacant building, opening up the way. And it started as a place where young black men could go to find jobs. So they had basically a person with a desk and a phone book and people could come in and say, I have these jobs. Yeah, um, you, can you, you, can the, you help me fill them? Brigade. Yeah, sweep the streets. Really remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were literally hiring these like 
14, 15 year olds with brooms to just go out in the streets and start cleaning up the area. Clean streets, mowing lawns. It sounded really remarkable. It sounded like the community taking care of itself. Absolutely. Which is, you know, we're seeing the exact same thing happen right now when it was so clear that there were so many needs that weren't being met in a, a lot of different neighborhoods here in the Twin Cities during the most recent unrest following the uh, murder of George Floyd that, you know, people have really had to set up their own systems to support their immediate communities. I mean, I live just down the street from an incredible restaurant called Pimento that is now turned into a place where people are bringing supplies and you can go there and you can get food, you can get uh, toilet paper, you can get, you know, more heavy duty supplies um, that people are donating because it's clear that it's just so needed. Um, so the way started as a kind of a job center and a, a kind of a community gathering space. And then very quickly incorporated this musical element that I was just fascinated by. Um, in 1967, the second summer of unrest, that was um, much more dramatic in that uh, time. And, and that's when a lot of the businesses were impacted on, on Plymouth Avenue. They actually held a street dance outside of the way for all the teenagers in the neighborhood to have something positive to do as they're all dealing with this, this turmoil. And after that, it, they started getting instruments donated from local businesses. They set up a, a room in the way that was basically a music room. And there was a house band that played there all the time, rehearsed there called The Family. And if you know anything about Prince, you know that name has a, a special meaning. Um, he actually stole that name <laughs> from the family that was... Uh, playing in the Way Community Center back in the day, and he would later go on to name one of his protege acts that. But back in the mid-70s, the family was led by Sonny Thompson, Sonny T of the New Power Generation, who was a couple years older than Prince and was a huge role model to him, musical influence. And Sonny's band was incredible. They ended up renaming um, themselves to uh, Back to Black, and they played at the way they would hold these battle of the bands and um, pretty soon it started spawning all of these other groups um, prince would go sit in with the family uh, morris day and andre simone recall going to the way uh, terry lewis and jimmy jam recall going to the way and performing in these battle of the band showcases and by the late 70s it's like there's this whole scene now of you know all of these guys that we associate with the Minneapolis sound still to this day, all rehearsing in this space, all hanging out at the center. They also had basketball, ping pong, all these things that Prince would be obsessed with for the rest of his life. Um, and it's, it's just so incredible to think that all of that came out of such a period of uncertainty and turmoil and tension and that they were able to have such a beautiful space to create this community. Was there a point in time where Prince felt he couldn't do what he needed to do or wanted to do in Minneapolis? I believe so. Um, he was very uh, eager to get out of the city when he was 18. He wanted to go to New York. He spent a short period of time there living with one of his half-sisters, shopping himself around to labels when he started the talks with uh, what would eventually be his, his label for many years, Warner Brothers, he spent time out in Los Angeles. That's where he recorded his debut album. But he always came back, and I think he got to the point where he was able to 
achieve the amount of success and get that support that he needed to really get going in the music industry. And then he came back and felt very um, comforted by being able to be connected to the neighborhood where he grew up and, and the people that he came up with. But I think there was always this point of tension of, um, you know, he saw his father, who was a jazz musician, you know, when he was a kid, his father was playing behind strippers downtown on Hennepin Avenue in downtown Minneapolis behind a curtain um, because they had uh, mixed or, or predominantly um, artists of color in their band. He saw his peers that were just a few years older than him struggle to get booked at any kind of venue near downtown Minneapolis and have to rent out ballrooms in Bloomington just to play shows. So I think he he was very aware of that tension. And I think he was very aware that he was going to have to do something very dramatic to break through that. And um, one of the most striking things that I've ever uncovered from that era of Prince's career is that when he was in negotiations to sign to Warner Brothers, he got to speak directly to the president of the label at the time, Lenny Warrenker. And he looked him right in the eye and he said, don't make me black. And in my opinion, and and this has been, you know, <laughs> analyzed to death by Prince fans over the years, but I think what he was saying in that moment is not that he wasn't proud to be a black man, not that he didn't want to be connected to this vibrant, amazing, talented pool of black artists in, in his town and, and around the world. But he saw the divides that were present in both Minneapolis and St. Paul and also the larger music industry. He saw that there were literally black departments of major labels and that they would shop you to black radio stations and book you in these black clubs. And he did not want to be part of that. He wanted to be considered an artist that made music for everybody. And what a powerful thing to know that he said that to Lenny when he was 19 years old. So he had that mentality already, and it was present throughout all of the developments that he went through in his whole creative evolution and career. So it's it's just been so fascinating to me as a, as a Prince fan and appreciator to learn this history and see just what an impact all of these very negative forces present in Minneapolis and St. Paul had on shaping him into the artists that we all know him as today. That was Andrea Swenson speaking with KEXP's Kevin Cole about her book, There's Got to Be Something Here, The Rise of the Minneapolis South. That was Sound and Vision. Before you click on the next podcast you want to listen to, open up your podcast app and subscribe to, rate, and review the Sound and Vision podcast. Those steps help deem this podcast worthy in the digital world and lets other people know that it exists. You can also go the extra mile and financially support this show by giving a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks so much for listening.